Nexus PMG welcomes you to the Bigger Than Us podcast, which we as energy geeks lovingly refer to as the BTU. Bigger Than Us is a podcast that focuses on ideas that will shape the future of our planet and ultimately our existence. We will occasionally lean into energy topics because after all, it's the key to our collective survival, but we'll also explore other ideas and topics that we believe will have an impact that is bigger than us. And now, on to today's show. Hello and welcome to the Bigger Than Us podcast. I'm your host, Raj Daniels, and today I'd like to welcome John Friedman to the show. John Friedman saw a need for urban agriculture to emerge as a competitive industry in the food landscape. In 2010, he and business partner Brad focused on rooftop greenhouses, but quickly realized that to achieve their goals, they needed a modular and scalable solution. In an effort to cut down on costs and logistics, Brad and John began to seriously consider building their new technology inside shipping containers. Not only were containers widely available, but they would allow farms to exist in areas that couldn't support traditional methods. As a result, Freight Farms was born, with the mission of building the infrastructure and technology that can allow local food to thrive. John, how are you doing today? Doing great. So glad to be here. John, I'm glad to have you. John, I'd like to dig right in before we get to Freight Farms with a quote that I found in doing my research about you. And I love the quote. The quote is, you are optimistic about humankind's ability to become balanced with the planet. Can you expand on that? Yeah, wow. That that feels like me just a couple of years ago. I, I I hope I still relate to that that quote. Um, you know, I think I think as technology progresses and uh, the human uh, psyche progresses, I think we will get to a point where we'll realize what we need to do to let the world and let the planet uh, do its thing and humans do our thing without uh, the two conflicting. And I think for so long, we've just had a giant footprint on the planet because that's the only way we knew how. So if we think about how we've gone from horses to cars to electric cars, you can see this progression of like, we really need the planet's help to survive. And as we get smarter, as we get better, as we get more conscious, uh, maybe maybe we can kind of let the earth kind of remediate and, and we can figure out how to do things on our own. Um, I think we're going to get there. I just hope not too late. Where do you think we are on this arc of remediation? I think we are, um, optimistically, I think we are 40 to 50 years away. Uh, I, I think we might be too late in the curve of um, climate and... Um, extinction of crops and animals. That's, that's my fear. But I think what we'll come out of that with is a path forward to, um, to rebuild um, and to understand how long it will take for things to repair. So I think we are a little too late, but I think we are on the path um, in our lifetimes to see uh, steps being taken to repair uh, the damage. And what about this conscious evolution? Where do you think we are with that? Oh, that's, Raj, you're hitting me with the deep ones. I love it. Um, I think we, I think each one of us 
has found a pocket in our brain that is um, further than the collective. And I, I, what I mean by that is I think each of us has in the past decade um, expanded our thinking in a way or found a niche or found a group that really resonates with uh, the future that we all want. And then there's all the other human stuff, like the selfishness and the, like, you know, you got to look out for number one and all those kind of things that conflict with that. So I think collectively, we all have uh, pieces to the puzzle that uh, we are uh, evolving. But I think, and the individual level, I think we all need have a lot to do. <laughs> I hope that gave you something to work with there. Absolutely. And along those lines, I don't know if you saw the headlines this morning, but um, there's somewhat of a mini revolt revolution going on in China right now, where their version, I guess, of the millennial generation of the 20-somethings are doing this um, protest, if you will, where they're lying down on the job. And essentially, they're saying that they're not willing to work. I don't know if you're familiar with the 996 model in China, but um, it's nine to nine, so 12 hours a day, six days a week. And... Mm -hmm they are saying that they are no longer willing to work those hours and they want more of their life back. Almost mm. along the lines of you know what millennials have been starting to say here in the last four or five years and this point about collective consciousness mm. that this path we've been on regarding Friedman in the last 50 years and how we should be perhaps looking to, and I don't want to say you know following a new master, but you know there's been this whole um, shareholder primacy and how we can work away from that. Yeah. Uh, I, you know, I think that is something that, that we preach, uh, through, uh, our application of trying to bring focus away from this globalized, centralized, you could call it power, or you could just call it the system that to be nice to those systems, you know, to, at, at a time, uh, they were very important for building, uh, civilization, building, uh, systems that would help people. But, has gotten to a point that it leaves a lot of people out of the story. And I think with the digital age and uh, being able to communicate and find other like interests online, um, people are kind of realizing that uh, there's another path to fulfillment that might not just be this very commercial centralized path. And I think bringing some independence back uh, is what, Technology has helped so many people do so many communities, countries, um, and individuals. And so I think when we look at you know, the, the technologies that will help us do that, it's anything that is democratizing access. Um, and that for, for us, that's farming. For other people, that might be 3D printing. For other people, that might be just being a voice online and having, uh, having a microphone. Well, speaking of farming, can you give the audience an overview of Freight Farms and your role at the organization? Yeah, sure. So, um, you know, if you look out there in the world, there's a lot of uh, places that used to grow crops really well. Um, and over time, there's been uh, a lot of areas that are being used to grow one crop um, because it's the most ideal at conditions that are, are left at that commercial scale. So, when we think about the, the places that need access to food the most, um, they're not always the places that it's easy to grow food. And then it's even harder to ship it from the place <laughs> that can grow it really well. So at our company, we're really looking at how can we ship farms and not food? How can we look at that centralized food system and build 
a decentralized platform that anybody can have access to growing fresh local on-site um, and having a better product in the end. And that, that uh, ability to grow food in their local environment is something that we see as a kind of a pillar to building community, building uh, a business and building more food security and independence. So the way we do that uh, and what we're com- most commonly known for is uh, we build farms in shipping containers. And yes, those are the shipping containers, the 40 by nine and a half feet that are going around the world, 40 by eight by nine and a half, that are going around the world right now, shipping other goods. Well, we saw that as a, a very viable platform because every economy in the world, every uh, location that has a port city or a, uh, is by water can have access to the infrastructure needed to bring this um, off the water onto the land. And you can fit it into many different locations and stack them. Uh, and a lot of them come insulated. So for us, uh, the shipping container farm really was the the fastest way that we can bring a sustainable farming solution to anybody in the world who needs access. And so within that farm is is one of the most technologically advanced growing environments in the world. We have automated uh, almost every process along the growing cycle. Uh, and really, when it comes to a new customer, it's a turnkey solution. Uh, the farm gets there and you can be growing day one. Our goal is to make anybody a farmer, anybody who wants to be a farmer, that you can buy a farm and get farming and see this as a way to feed your community, but also um, a way to grow your business. Now, going back in your history, I know you have some experience with hydroponics, but how did you and your co-founder come up with the idea to grow indoor farms? Yeah, so going back to when I was just in a a very different place from where I am now. I was coming out of uh, a role in uh, design for a pharma company. And this was around the 2008 uh, market crash. And, you know, at that time coming, uh, coming from a place where I didn't have the house at that time. And so I wasn't uh, as affected by that, but, you know, looking forward, uh, I was just like everybody else. Like, what do we do next? If, the value of things isn't really controlled by the people who own the things. And that's a really scary place. I think for uh, a lot of people who are in that retirement age, it was a really scary place for people who are like going into the job market for the first time because uh, nobody really knew what to invest in or what to like, what truth was when it came to how much one thing cost. Um, so that was, that was really a, like a moment when you, know, you do a little bit of, self uh inventory and say well what do i believe is the truth and what can i get behind that i know uh, isn't going to be governed by markets or anything else that's uh out of my control and i think a lot of families think the same way where, where should i put my time where should i put my energy where should i put my money and you know i was looking at food because you know surely food uh should be a very one-to-one it takes this much to grow it and so we know how much to cost it costs, and then it gets sold at this price. Very honest business. It turns out food is a very um, messy, like really um, convoluted supply chain, and it's not um, as straightforward as that. But it should be. It it is the most basic principle of of life. We need to eat food three times a day if possible. Um, and so the 
the bare bones, the, the brass tacks of that should be very straightforward. Um, so yeah, so I started investigating that it really wasn't, and there's a lot of subsidies and there's a lot of complicated things in the middle there. Um, so that really became my desire to make that an honest business, but not a hard business. Uh, I think everybody thinks of farming as this very hard, arduous, like labor intensive task and seeing where we were with technology and where agriculture was lagging on so much of the modern technologies. Um, it felt like the right place to invest my time and, and energy and figure out how we can make farming more accessible on a, a broader scale and more transparent and more automated and more um, you know, for what we needed. So I think it must have been about 2010 uh, when my co-founder and I were looking at ways that we could bring farming closer to the city. We were looking at rooftop greenhouses as this beautiful vision of the city. You look out and on top of every building was a greenhouse growing food for the, the people that lived in, in that vicinity. And that really uh, that got deflated pretty quickly uh, once we started getting up on those roofs, especially in Boston where we live. And these buildings are old. They are, they are not something you, you want to put a lot of weight on top. And then you'd have to get an elevator up there and you'd have to uh, do a lot of structural engineering. And so through this exercise, we got to this point where we were like, you know, the people who are talking to us and we're talking to that want this, you know, wholesale food produce distributors, uh, schools, uh, a couple of restaurants. They're like, we love this idea. We showed up with a half a million dollar to start quote, and then to actually get it up and operational, you're over a million dollars. Like they're like, oh, okay. So farming's not for me. That's cool. Um, I'll just keep on buying it from, you know, where I can get it. And the where I can get it uh, was a problem as well, because as I mentioned before, it's a it's kind of a scale game. If you want a very unique crop from a certain part of the world, you know nobody's going to just ship for you like a couple of cases. It's just not economical to do that. So restaurateurs and people who want something for a very specific reason uh, have to be thinking only what it, they can buy in bulk and large volumes to make the price of the food work. So we were sitting there feeling like, okay, we're not helping anybody by putting a very expensive greenhouse in one location. We're not really helping anybody by building something that is just the same crops that you can get on the market. Uh, so trying to solve those two things, the the first thing was the structure, making something that is can have a really uh, high heat load uh, snow load can be stacked, can be um, shipped easily. Shipping containers just became the the vessel and the form and the envelope all in one, right? And and that really opened the door for us to, to move quickly to the tech inside and building a controlled environment that could bring more precision to the plant development and the plant physiology. So we could pull out certain attributes of things that you just couldn't get on the market. Uh, so we could grow things that you could do right there on site that would only be possible in an environment somewhere in South Africa or somewhere in New Guinea or somewhere that you would just never expect or you would just never be able to ship in from. South America is where a lot of our pr produce comes from. But South America is also uh, very industrialized in the way that produce is grown. So thinking about how we can take some of those environments and tune them more to a wide variety of crops 
was uh, just such an exciting moment for us to say, okay, we think we have something here. And at that point, uh, we took to Kickstarter. And you know, once we had the kind of idea framed out, we were kind of off and running, put a video up. And the next, uh, the next couple of days after we posted it, uh, we got people from all around the world saying, hey, I need this. Hey, I want this. We could really use this here. This is exactly what we've been looking for. And that was... That was when we had to go from, hey, this is a crazy idea to, oh, I think, I think this is a business. Uh, we should really figure out what we're doing. Um, and then the, the past 10 years have been just nonstop. So from Kickstarter, how long did it take you to go from the crazy idea to your working prototype? So Kickstarter was, um, uh, we did that, took us about three months to go from Hey, we've got an idea. Do film all the Kickstarter stuff. Put it up there. We put a pretty short timeline on it, and that was that was January of 2011, 2012. Man, hmm. sorry, I'm gonna have to think do that one over again. Uh, my timeline at this point is all messed up. Yeah, so we from the time we got the Kickstarter funding, uh, it was about six months later that we had the first prototype up and running. And from that point, uh, I think that was at the beginning of summer, we redesigned it three times. So we got it running and they were like, mm, no, that's not right. I like took it apart, put it back together. And then by the end of the summer, we had it to a point where we said, okay, we're going to show people, we want to show people what this can actually do. And we started to bring people from different parts of the world, people who had been following us since the Kickstarter campaign, brought them into the farm. And that's when things really started kicking up and uh, went into people actually requesting uh, that they would purchase one. So uh, the next uh, the next farm would was built just six months later. And the first production run that we had uh, was probably eight months after that. Uh, so our first, you know, our first unit was called the leafy green machine. And that was the, you know, the thing that we told the world, you can buy this, it will do X much produce. And we started calling it the leafy green machine because we wanted people to see this as something that would be high repeatable yields. The leafy green machine could grow a lot of things, but we wanted to focus it on something that we knew people would be profitable uh, if they would consistently grow this one crop or this one type of crop. So yeah, so that was uh, from the time Kickstarter launched to the leafy green machine uh that was little under two years so as you probably know in the startup world they say hardware is hard you brought together okay. a lot of different technologies um you know artificial intelligence robotics iot etc mm -hmm. how were you able to get that kind of expertise all together in such a short amount of time yeah hardware is hard they're not joking around when they say that and hardware that is 40 feet <laughs> long. <laughs> uh, that is not an easy product to launch. And luckily, we had naivety on our side. Uh, we were very unaware of the challenges ahead, which was probably a good thing. I think a lot of startups say very similar things. Like if I, if I knew how hard it was, I wouldn't have done it. But, you know, we had a lot of energy going with us. We had a lot of people that would just come out of the woodworks because they saw what we were trying to do. People that in a normal world, you just wouldn't come in contact with, you wouldn't be able to afford, you wouldn't even think to ask them. But from going through some of the startup accelerators, uh, we just got connected to a, a bunch of people who are saying, 
you know, I'm ready in, at this point in my career to just do something good. And, uh, and I want it to be this. And so we, we had a pretty small team at first, uh, but between the small team we had and just some of the, the vendors and um, industry partners that we connected with, they really were the ones that gave us uh, the momentum we needed. They, they really took a flyer on some of those early prototypes just to see if this thing could work. And I think that that's something that I think a lot of a lot of early stage companies can be really successful by making their partners part of the story and making their you know vendors, uh, people in their network a little bit more uh, just celebrate them a little bit more because you really can't do it without them. Staying with the theme of startup world, you made the transition from, as Peter Thiel would say, from zero to one. Yeah. How many units have you sold to date? Uh, sold to date, uh, we're close to 500 units all around the world. And where are the majority of your customers located? So, uh, let's see, uh, I'm going to say we're about 50, 50. So 50% of the customers that we have are here in the, the U S, uh, we're almost in almost every state in the U S. Uh, and then the other 50% is scattered around the world. And, uh, we've got folks who are in Europe, Northern Europe, Scandinavia, Middle East. Uh, we've got folks in Northern Canada, Alaska, Guam, um, a lot of the islands uh, were bit very popular in the islands because these are the places that it's really hard to uh, ship food to. So especially fresh food. These are the places that just to get that head of lettuce onto a boat or onto a truck, onto a boat and backed onto a truck and into some type of refrigerated facility and have that be climate controlled the whole time, you're adding a lot of cost to that head of lettuce. So what happens is those those areas, those uh, communities just shy away from fresh produce. They are very meat heavy diet, very processed foods heavy. And then the trickle effect of that is you have high rates of obesity and just not great diets in those those areas. So um, those areas for uh, the past few years have been such a big driver of where we're trying to accommodate the most sustainable food production. So the most food security so that we can see, we can find those places and say, you could probably feed your whole community off of X amount of farms. Where did your first international order come from? First international, um, that is hard for me to remember. Um, that feels pretty good. Canada, <laughs> if you would say Canada is international. Uh, I don't think most people would, but uh, yeah, Canada was our first uh, international farm. And that's you know an obvious one, uh, just because there are definitely places up there that it's really hard to ship food. If you've ever seen ice road truckers, it's a real thing where there are certain roads that at certain times of the year just don't exist. And it's cold. Uh, so growing local is a very difficult thing. So I'm going to switch gears here because I'm very interested in your nonprofit. Um, I don't know if I'd call it a mission or sector, mm -hmm. but can you share with the audience what you're doing working with nonprofits and how nonprofits can benefit from partnering with you? Absolutely. So one of the things that we've found over the years is that you know food production isn't always just about making money. It's not just about um Hey, I'm growing this crop and I'm selling it to these these local restaurants. What we found is that farming as a occupation and just a general program application can really strengthen a community, strengthen a kind of organization's existing mission and, and goals. 
we have some of the the just inspirational um, clients in the nonprofits uh, sector. For one, we have um, a women's shelter down in Miami. They got this farm as a way to really build a program about teaching people how to do a new skill. And the the interesting thing about that is, you know, when these women come into the shelter, sometimes they have kids with them. And we set up their farm and, and got them up and running. And, and when we came down to visit them, the entire farm was being run by children under nine years old. And we were just a little taken aback by that because, yeah, we were trying to make this farm you know, very commercially productive so that anybody could grow it. But we, we didn't really anticipate um, this level. And so um, that was a few years ago. Uh, but since then, uh, we've been really working a lot with communities and to put farming uh, in the center of that so that you're putting equity back in the, the community centered around health, food, and jobs, um, jobs that you can really train anybody up, up to do and that you can scale up into a, you know, a really sustaining business. We've been working with the, the Boys and Girls Club of America. Um, we've been working with uh, Cass Housing, which is another uh, one focused on autism to help uh, people with autism get into uh, roles that really fit their perspective on the world. And yeah, it's, been, it's just been a, a really eye-opening um, experience of how when you when you put when you put agriculture into different uh, communities and different people's hands, what they do with it, and how that connection with plants and connection with food really takes the shape of the community rather than the uh, the piece of technology. Now, has Freight Farms engaged in any what I'm going to call public private partnerships? And I'll give you an example. I think I've shared it before on a show, but I've, I've had this idea here locally in Dallas. There's some areas that have food deserts. And in my mind, I was kind of thinking, you know, what would it look like if a company like Freight Farms would partner with the city of Dallas and this, the Dallas, you know, the city could perhaps donate the land because I look at it as a not only opportunity to get fresh food in those food desert areas, but also for, like you said, engaging the community, training, learning, bringing people into this um, sustainable farming movement. Yeah. You know, the, the, we often say that our number one output is farmers. Like that's the, the number one thing we grow. And that's because we've really focused on A, making the unit uh, pretty self-sufficient, but B, building those training programs, whether that is in person or online, so that anybody can start to learn at their own pace. Um, they can feel very comfortable operating this and they can operate it at the speed of the program or of their needs. So uh, we've got a lot of modes in the farm uh, as well that complement that. So if we were to put it down in any location, we can really set the pace of production by the performance of the farm and the, the frequency in which people will be in that farm. So in the case that you mentioned, you know, uh, we have seen a lot of uh, programs where there'll be one uh, champion in that that market and gonna offer training to people in the community to come once a week to learn and then to take that learning and and build opportunities for either part-time jobs or kind of a career track um, I think that is something that a lot more uh, grocery stores should be doing uh, when we, we think about the uh, food deserts that we have in the US uh, we should be thinking about how we go into those communities that uh, are lacking fresh produce as a staple of, of the diet and 
not just going in there and saying, hey, now you can buy this from us, going in there with some tools to say, this is going to be a source for good rather than a source for profit. Well, speaking of tools, I think you have a great toolkit on your website, the eight steps to launching your farming business. Hmm. And as I was going through that, the one thing that stood out to me, and I'm bringing this up because it's very relevant right now in the time we're living in, if someone engages with the business planning tool, you have the hourly wage starting at $15 an hour. And after talking to you for a while, I feel like that was done intentionally. Tell me about that. Yeah, uh, you are you are correct. Um, I think about the stories that I've heard about farming and over the past 10 years, and sorry if I'm taking a long way to get to this answer, but when we I first got into farming, uh, there was an epidemic, farmers committing suicide because it is a lonely job. And there were these help groups uh, for farmers who are, they're carrying on their family business and they feel like failures if they don't keep it going. But the way it, you know, we've treated food in this world and we've treated farming in, in the US, uh, it's so disconnected from the end consumer uh, that, that we don't really put the right value on the work that's being done and the food itself. Uh, it's just been a product of this kind of commercialization and kind of mass production model. So you've seen just a lot of small farmers uh, have a really tough decade. Um, and we've seen a lot of farmers just uh, call it quits um, and wind down the family business. Um, between that and farmers just being bought out by larger farms and, and consolidation, the proposition of being a farmer hasn't really been that attractive uh, for a long time. And so as you know, we look at other countries and, and our own of, of how, you know, People are aging out of agriculture and the next generation is not interested in this as a field. We feel like it's our responsibility to make sure that every new farmer that goes into the world has the opportunity to be driving a Lamborghini and having houses and doing whatever the other rich professions are out there in the world. We feel that farming in its base form should have the path to being one of the most desirable pr professions. And that starts at the ground level of saying, if you just want to hire somebody for this job, you should be setting that bar at something that is livable. Um, I think 15 an hour in some places is very livable. In some places, you might have to go up from that. In Boston, 15 an hour is pretty tough. But the whole proposition of of what we are trying to build with the infra infrastructure across the board. And that's not just the farm, that's also software and that's services around that. Building that infrastructure is so that we can create a path for a sustainable uh, generation of agriculture, which means a profitable generation of agriculture. So yes, that $15 is very specific um, and, and intentional because agriculture should be profitable uh, for everybody and, and uh, beneficial for everybody involved. It's interesting you say profitable for everyone involved. I'm actually in the uh, process of writing a blog post, which I'm not sure if we're going to publish yet or not, but essentially the title of the blog post is along the lines of your business model is broken. And the premise is essentially, you know, if you're not if you're not considering or thinking about paying your employees $15 an hour or around that, then um, you need to start evaluating your business model because Costco, Amazon, Walmart, 
you know, $15 an hour. And so if there are quick service restaurants, farmers, uh, hospitality out there that have got a business mm-hmm. model based on less than $15, I think um, those models are going to be, have to be reevaluated very quickly. I think you're absolutely right. Yeah. I think, I think one of the the jobs of, of anybody, any business, um, but for, for us is educating the consumer that what they're experiencing, what they're purchasing is worth that money. And I think in the early days, that was a challenge for us because, you know, we're growing this head of lettuce and it's beautiful, pesticide free, herbicide free. It's completely like clean. You have uh, traceability back from it, from seed to harvest, but it looks exactly like the other crops on the, uh, on the shelf there. And those are cheaper. And so that's, that moment is where that it all comes back to that $15 an hour at the same time is like what what we want the customers to see, taste, feel when they um, see a head of lettuce that's grown in a freight farm is the obvious difference. Uh, and it's it's a no-brainer for them to pay a couple cents more for that head, head of lettuce. And so that's been part of the kind of techno- technology pursuit as well is to really pull out those characteristics, those desirable characteristics that you just can't get from a traditionally grown or uh, greenhouse grown and really push new SKUs into the market so that, you know, in, in a time where our kind of biodiversity is shrinking, we're introducing new things to a, a much more educated and health inclined uh, market. Since you mentioned lettuce, what is the most popular crop? The most popular crop um, for, oof, I mean, that's a loaded question. The most popular crop in our network is probably a variety of spring mixes. And that is based just driven on the market demand. Uh, we do have a lot of people who are doing uh, things like mint, basil, a lot of the herbs. Those are a very high value crop. And there are other high value crops that people across our network are doing. Obviously, uh, things that are rarer are getting uh, an even higher premium. So we've got folks who are doing edible flowers, um, some unique flowers that are like culturally significant or they're just rare in that part of the world. Uh, we've got a lot of people doing root vegetables right now, uh, which is probably unexpected uh, in a hydroponic setup. But I think the, the, the overall network you know, really just gravitates to what are the things that are easiest to uh, kind of set it and forget it and that I can scale up quickly in that market. Uh, so Originally, somebody will usually get a farm, they'll grow a bunch of things in there, go out to their market and say, hey, I can grow this. What about this? What about this? And I would say within the first three to six months, a client or a buyer comes to them and said, I'm looking for this specific thing that I can't get anywhere else. Name your price. What, like, how much can you get for me? And that's usually how the conversation goes uh, for our customers, like deciding what they're going to grow versus what they end up growing. And since you mentioned getting a farm, if someone listening is interested in purchasing a farm, ballpark, I'm not going to hold you to the exact number, but ballpark, what's the cost of a farm? Yes. So if you're looking to get the, the new Greenery S, uh, it's $140,000. Uh, you should probably bake in about $10,000 for shipping, site setup, um, any just initial business startup costs that you are uh, going to incur. But on that, in most markets, you are looking at a two-year payback. Very interesting. I appreciate you sharing that. Earlier, you said something, and I wrote it down here. You mentioned around the 2000, 2007, 2008 timeframe. You said something along the lines of value of things that aren't controlled by people that own the things. <laughs> and yeah. 
you know, you mentioned that as a as a turning point for you, that that whole time frame, you and your co-founder. But the crux of our conversation is, you know, the why behind what you do. You mentioned the interest in farming coming from design, but what drives you? What motivates you? What keeps you going? You know, coming from a, a design background, you know, I studied systems design, so it's really how things interlock, and that doesn't have to necessarily be a physical thing. That can be um, an economy. Uh, it could be a community that could be both of those things intersecting. And so one of the things that just really took me by surprise through this experience is how how much I fell in love with plants, <laughs> how much that interconnectivity of environmental conditions and the controlled response of what is genetically within that plant, that relationship and the just plethora of outcomes that can happen and what that means on a economic level or a health level. Um, all of that interconnectivity is really what just prevents me from sleeping every night. I, I think the, the nature nurture combo that we have tools for now that we didn't many years ago, uh, that is really just starting to tell the next chapter of the story. So with the greenery S being able to control uh, the conditional response of every stage of plant development is now showing us that there's there was more on that seed than we originally thought. You know, if you think if you think about taking a, we'll just take a head of lettuce. We'll take a, a lettuce seed and we're going to plant it in California versus Boston and just out in the wild. You can venture a guess that that seed's going to do better in California. But if you take that seed and you say, well, California is our best environment to grow this. If we take that seed and we put it in the greenery S, we can make that argument that the seed has never had the best environment to grow. And we only know lettuce and we only know those attributes and we only know the outcome of that running that program in dirt in California. And we've just been replicating that over the years. What we can do now is we can give it the perfect amount of sunlight, the perfect amount of light spectrum. We can give it uh, a orchestra of nutrient conditions. We can bring it from a very high temperature to a low temperature and then gradually bring the humidity up. And so what we have been able to do is really take the best climate conditions from around the world and put them all in one place. And so what that is just why it's so exciting is uh, because, you know, plants will save the world. I mean, you look at the uh, Beyond Meat uh, and you look at Impossible and how fast that has changed and how fast like plant-based things have come to take the, uh, take the baton for how we save the world. It's great to be in that industry. It's great to be in that world where within, within the sequence of this uh, seed is a story. And uh, within that story might be a couple sentences that will help us cure a disease or make a new material or figure out a way to sequester more carbon. It's cool to be on on that on that road. It is cool. And as you were sharing that story, I can almost draw the parallel to people too. Yes, totally. So been on this journey 12, 13 years now. What's the most valuable lesson you've learned about yourself on your journey? <laughs> wow. Uh, this, is, this is a real hard-hitting one. Um, most valuable lesson I've learned about myself. Um, well, I think... <laughs> There's a couple. There's a couple of things that I think anybody who starts on a a, a mission 
driven company um, has to get comfortable with. And, and that is that the things that you start off doing and the things that you're very good at uh, to get things going, um, you're eventually going to have to pass that off to somebody else. And you're going to have to trust that, that someone else is going to be able to do it better. And so I think what I've found about myself is that running a business is really something anybody can do. Um, but building a team is the most essential piece of the puzzle. It's building the right team and building a community branches off from that team that you create. And so if you want to have like an online community, you want to have a uh, awesome customer base, you want to have a great product, you want all these things, like it all just uh, permeates from the environment that you create within your four walls or however many walls your office is. And the, you know, the ethics you live by every day and the, the things you do and the people you surround yourself with uh, really is the, it's the heartbeat of the company. And so I never thought that before. I never would have considered. And it's hard to, it's hard to marry that with a large company. And uh, uh, as we're growing, it's, it's something that I, I think I'm considering more and more of how you, how you take a very mission-driven company and not lose that as you, as you scale. And, and I, I think I've just learned how important that is to me and important to people I work with and to our customers as well is your community is really everything. So speaking of building a team and scaling, let's move into the future. It's 2030. Let's say Business Week or you know any of the other business publications, Forbes, Fortune, were to write a headline about freight farms, what would you like that headline to read? Well, today we have the largest network of farmers in the world. And that is a really cool starting point for looking into the future. We have uh, farmers of different backgrounds, cultures, and, uh, languages, all talking on a single, they all have a common platform to work off of. Now, when we think about like the power behind that and the the thing that drives that, the software piece is is a lot bigger than we really let people in on um, when you look at our presence online. But Farmhand, which is the uh, operating system for the farm, is something that is growing as a platform very quickly. And what it's allowing us to do is is allowing us to spread that network beyond just the farm and say. If you are interested in in farming, come on, we'll teach you how. Maybe you don't have your farm yet, but you want to get into farming down the road. Maybe you do have a greenhouse, but you want it to be smarter and you want it to do some of those tasks for you, or you want it to give you analytics that is just not accessible right now. That's where Farmhand can help you. Uh, maybe you want to build out something that is a little bit more focused on your operations. You've uh, scaled up and you're trying to manage your farm uh, from an operations level, and uh, that's and the people within it, that's something where Farmhand could help you as well. So as we look out into 2030, um, we don't really see controlled environment being the only place that data and automation will help make farming in, in general a more efficient, productive, sustainable, and profitable industry to be in. So um, I think in 2030, we will have an even larger network, but it will be a very smart network, and it will touch almost every aspect of agriculture. That's a very exciting vision. I look forward to seeing that come to fruition. <laughs> Thanks, Rash. So, you know, you mentioned 
heartbeat of the company, building a team. You've already given some advice during this conversation. But my last question is, if you could share some advice or words of wisdom, and it could be professional or personal with the audience, hmm. what would it be? Hmm. Uh, as a, uh, as if somebody is, uh, thinking about starting a business, ignore all that talk of getting seven hours or eight hours of sleep. That's a lie. You won't sleep for years if you want to do something well <laughs> and don't make yourself feel bad about it. It's okay. Uh, you're doing something that you want to do that is important to you and important to the world. It's gonna, it's gonna take a toll. Having babies takes a toll on people. It's tough. Um, this is going to be your baby. So uh, don't worry about that, but try to try to eat well. Um, and uh, when you haven't had a lot of sleep, know that you're going to be a little bit crankier than normal. So that's one. I like that. Um, I would say my other uh, advice. Um, well, I would say, you know, one thing that I have really held with me since I entered the workforce uh, as, a, as a smaller, younger person is that usually the person on the ground knows the most. They might not be the most refined. They might not know the language or they might not know the vernacular that you know. But the person doing the work is probably the person that you should take, take notes from. And we try to, we try to live that ethos. Um, but I see a lot of businesses losing sight of the person who's actually doing the work is, is probably more important than the person on top, the person who's you know, running the company. And I think that's something that it's just a mind sh mindset shift that um, is happening more and more where people realize that maybe we don't need all that. I don't need five managers on top of this one person who's the talent. And so I would suggest that anybody who is in the investor world or startup world and or at any level of business, don't lose sight on the actual work. John, I really appreciate that. I think great place to end is the person on the ground knows the most. Really appreciate your time today and look forward to catching up with you again soon. All right. Thanks, Raj. This has been great. Thank you, John. Thank you for listening. If you like our show, please give us a rating and review on iTunes. And you can show your support by sharing our show with a friend or reach out to us on social media where you'll find us under our Nexus PMG handle. If there's a subject or topic you'd like to hear about, send me an email, btu at nexuspmg.com or contact me via our website, nexuspmg.com. And while you're there, you can sign up for our monthly newsletter where we share what we're reading and thinking about in the clean tech, green tech sectors. Bigger Than Us is a Nexus PMG production.